Hi, everyone. My name is Josh Williams. Welcome to the Elm City Vineyard Church. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, you're catching us at a great time. We're actually near the end of our series, Nonviolence, How to Seek Peace and Pursue It, at home, at work, and on the streets. It's been a great series, learning from the way of Jesus, which is the way of nonviolence, listening to his words, seeing how other people in history practice this, and also being inspired to do this ourselves. And not just inspired, but to really commit to this way as part of what it means to follow Jesus as we do that in Elm City Vineyard in New Haven. You know, we're, we're at the end of our series, and I want us to take a bird-eyes view of what we've learned, to try to make things practical, really see how could I keep doing this work of nonviolence. Uh, we'll build off that for the rest of our time together. The first is we can understand that nonviolence is aggressive. It's defiant. It's full of love, and it's the way of Jesus. There's a lot of people that somehow misconstrue nonviolence to mean passive, just without violence, instead of this kind of aggressive energy that moves towards conflict to bring peace. We also need to name wrongdoing and evil through creative nonviolent action. This is where we have choices every day to either fight with violent action or to flee, to have this option of flight. And that could be running away from problems, but it also could look like shape-shifting, being passive, kind of giving up yourself for the sake of someone else, not speaking up. Or there's this third way we talked about, which is facing the situation with God. This is where we practice, we workshop, we fumble uh, until we find ourselves growing in resolve, creative action, and even love that restores the enemy. We also learned about the power of the ask, that we can ask when we're angry, when we're sad or confused, and doing so allows violence not to kind of bottle up in our hearts, but we just get to ask God and sometimes even ask other people. Uh, we can be attentive to how otherwise there's this drift in our bodies, in our spirits, in our hearts. This is asking for what we truly want, and then seeing how we can actually avoid conflict, not maybe altogether, but we can stop the kind of depths of what conflict can bring by saying, let's just acknowledge I'm sad, I'm angry. And if I don't acknowledge that, and if I don't ask God for a different way out, I'm going to get stuck in a kind of violence. Violence defined as something that destroys, damages, or degrades human beings, other people. And lastly, we have to practice we have to practice what it means to flourish in exile, to be about the work of creativity, building, and growth. So when a shaking comes to our kind of hope for flourishing, our adoption of flourishing practices, uh, that we have formation, and formation that's more than just being against. It stands for a positive vision of God's coming kingdom. We talked about how this could be a practice of Sabbath, of rest. It could be a practice of what it means to believe in forgiveness, to just say, you know what? I want to flourish even as oppression is all around me. I want joy to be part of my resistance, not just this being against to be the foundation of it. So what is this series meant for you? Like practically, like what is it meant for your life? Because we're in this series, not just for more information. We know that we have that all over. We're in this series for transformation. We want to see transformed lives and we want to see a transformed city and a transformed world. And these workshops we've been doing on Thursdays, they've been great times to really press into that transformation. I've heard some amazing stories. Uh, a story of someone that re-engaged their neighborhood block watch chat. They were in it in the spring when there was a spate of violence in their neighborhood. And they just said, this is racist. This is just kind of either veiled or very apparent racism. And I don't want to be a part of this. And they stepped away. 
But coming into this workshop, they said, I have to actually go back in and I need some help doing that. So they asked and kind of for help. Uh, they workshop the situation. And it turns out one of their neighbors was in the workshop. And they said, actually, there's this anti-racist group chat that's actually trying to do work to come towards people, to move towards people. So our neighbor has a different kind of discourse. And they said, this is amazing. They've already been uh, I think it's a workshop they've been in. They've already been in an anti-racist workshop, and they've shared their story and gotten support. Instead of being alone, this person needed to be together with others as their first step to a nonviolent life, and they did so. Someone else decided to lay out what they would need in a job where they were finding there was a lot of negative peace in that job, a place where things looked cozy or quiet or fine, but underneath it, there was a, a real culture that were like, I kind of need to stand against this. So they just said, hey, this is what I would need to see change to stay here. And the job didn't respond favorably. And so they wrote a letter, a letter that spoke to this organization's core values, their core mission, and said, this is what I feel like you're called to. This is what I wanted to see. And I didn't. But you still have a chance to doing that. And I want to be with you, not as an employee anymore, but as a person that's uh, been a part of this program that can uh, speak to people and, uh, and still be with people. So they actually named the wrongdoing and stayed in relationship. It was an amazing way that they decided to creatively resist while showing that they were with people still. Lastly, someone did something absolutely crazy. They de-escalated an internet argument. They de-escalated an internet argument uh, that was kind of public by just private chatting one of those escalators and saying, hey, uh, I, here's some thoughts I have. And maybe here's a way that you could see it. And that uh, person, they found the other one responding to them saying, hey, I, I didn't think about it that way. Can we keep talking? Can we keep this conversation going? When you're de-escalating an internet argument, you know you've got something like in you that's like, I need to practice this because like, why else would you do that? That's absolutely crazy. But there's stuff happening in our church as people try to find how can we practice nonviolence. It's not just our church though. It's our city, our city that needs the work of peace. If you've been following the news, you know that we've had six homicides already in 2021, about one for each week. And the latest one, Kevin Jiang, happened this past weekend, a homicide where a person that a lot of us in the community know, we definitely know communities that he was a part of, Trinity Baptist Church, uh, campus fellowships at Yale, uh, we're mourning the loss of someone. And we're also acknowledging that there are other five deaths, other five homicides that we actually know less about because of how we uh, aren't as connected to parts of the New Haven community. This is a way of recognizing sometimes there's a, a negative piece, right, that can even keep human life that's lost, right? Well, it, we're in a city. It, it happens. But it takes one that maybe hits closer to home to realize, wait, six? One for almost each week of 2021? What's happening? And around my neighborhood, there's even a, a case of a person that was found in Edgewood Duck Pond, found dead. So seven bodies, seven lives, seven souls. There's conflict in our city. There's violence in our city. How are we moving forward with peace? To do any of this, we have to commit to a godly obedience that has its eyes wide open to the consequences of obeying God in this costly call to the nonviolent life that goes forward into conflict instead of shirking back. Uh, a nonviolent life that's ready to say yes. And sometimes this yes for obedience looks maybe splashy. Sometimes it looks regular ordinary. And I think it can even look a little bit lame. And we'll explain more of that later. Sometimes it might feel one way to you, but look another way to others, this life of obedience. We're going to look at two stories today from the Bible to open us up to what obedience can look like. The spectacular, 
the mundane, and even the lame. We'll also see how obedience can happen through values or liens shaped by your formation or by God's direct voice that we hear in our everyday lives. Not hearing like you're hearing me speak all the time, but hearing like hearing something in your heart, hearing a still small voice, having an impression that just you can't shake God's voice in your lives. So let's jump in with a continuation of a story from last week about Daniel and his friends. Before they do that, uh, let's pray together. God, I pray that you would be here as we hear these stories from Scripture, as we learn more about nonviolence and really what it means to obey you and to be aware of the consequences. God, help us uh, listen, help us be open, and help us even have desire for what it could look like to have an obedient life, aware of the consequences. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, We talked last week about Daniel and his friends that are Jewish people, but they're living in exile in Babylon. They essentially took a high-powered internship or an apprenticeship with the king, and they read Babylonian literature, they studied languages, they wore the clothing of the culture. But critically, Daniel and his friends did not eat their food. It turns out there's actually a rule in in their uh, law and formation that said, eating the food of the Babylonian culture would make them impure. So they didn't do that. And their commitment to flourishing, even in exile, led them to serve under the king. They said, we're going to serve because we believe in what it means to flourish even in exile. But it's their formation as the people of God that led them to resist. And if you remember that story from last week, they resisted in a creative way that actually brought them favor with other people. They were able to just eat their vegetables, right? <laughs> just like our moms told us. And with that, they said, hey, we could, this feels fine. But we kind of knew, is this going to always go this way? Where they just ask, remember the power of the ask, for what they want and have that as their form of resistance. Sometimes our resistance actually kind of turns up. And so we'll see how the pressure of exile turns up on these folks. So let's go to Daniel. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. It's important at the beginning of the story to really understand something. The king is just going about his business of empire. And I want to define empire here as the building up of institutional power for its own sake and its own glory. He set up these dangerous laws, but Daniel's crew here, which is called by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they just ignore them. The existence of these laws don't actually stop them from being free because they simply just refuse to obey them. But then some religious competitors, these astrologers, people that are not uh, the Jewish people, but people that are kind of like have maybe uh, a lane in that spiritual world, they say, no, no, no. We need to bring up that these Jewish folk, they're not following the rules. They're not worshiping this image of gold. They're not bowing down to the king. They're getting in the way of building up the king's empire. And that is when we have a power showdown. They snitch on the empire building, they snitch to the empire building king, and then the machine of empire fires up. 
Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing fire. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Let's look at one of those lines just once more. It's so powerful. The king says, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. Remember I said last week that Babylon usually doesn't try to destroy you at first. It tries to convert you. Here it is again, right? Just one more shot, y'all. If you're ready to fall down and worship, very good. Like, it'll be totally fine. Like, you're, you're good if you just do that. Like, no problem at all. It doesn't matter what the astrologers say. These offers are not necessarily bad offers on surface, right? Think about it. You get stopped by a cop. Hey, I'm the cop. Just say my name three times in a row. I know it's silly, but just say it, and you won't get a ticket. What do you do? Even though you might feel foolish and very strange, you'll probably say the cop's name three times in a row so you don't get a ticket. You're just trying to avoid a negative consequence. But let's think about the language of the king and maybe use the language of the empire. Say you're a company employee and your boss heads over to your cubicle, leans next to you and says, is it true that you mentioned what the company did with its taxes? You would never mention that to anyone, right? Now we're in a more precarious situation. Babylon's always trying to recruit others to the ways of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar is no different. It turns out, though, that being formed by God through a commandment not to lie means something. It turns out, though, that being formed to worship God alone looks like something. These practices of formation are the north star to Daniel's friends. They don't have to decide in the moment what's right. They don't have to start a nonprofit for the non-worship of things other than the Most High God incorporated. All they need to do is provide a little elbow grease to their existing formation. We are people of the truth who worship the one who is God alone. That formation tells them and shows them so much of what they want to do, of what they ought to do, of what they will do as people who are formed into the image of God. And they do that with eyes open obedience, eyes that are fully alert and awake to the consequences. We see it even when the astrologers are talking. You will be thrown immediately into a blazing fire. That consequence doesn't change their obedience. In fact, I think it probably sharpens and roots their obedience because they know that's the consequence. We're aware, and we're still choosing to obey. So then what God can rescue you, taunts the king. What will Daniel's friends do? They obey God alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into a blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Daniel's friends don't defend themselves. They don't justify themselves. They certainly don't lie or give in to cowardice or even self, uh, just self-preservation like some of us might. They say, 
if we are thrown into the fire, which I love that if, right? They're just like really, they got a lot of faith. Hey, you might not do this. We're pretty persuasive or maybe God will do something or maybe you'll just leave. But if we are thrown into the fire, God is able to deliver us and will. And two, even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or your gold. What a powerful phrase, that they won't serve your gods or your gold. Obedience, it's not based in hearing God in the moment, it seems at all, but more a long and steady formation. If you punish us, we know God will rescue. And if you punish us and God doesn't rescue, we'll still never serve your gods or your gold. They're resolute. They're people of a deep formation. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. Remember, he kind of stopped converting and started to now use the weight of the empire against them. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. See, like this weight of empire, so hot, so crazed, so urgent, that people that didn't even need to die, died. That's what the violence of empire does. These soldiers that were taking care of these three, they died themselves. This is the cost of living an empire kind of life. But remember, uh, Daniel's friends here, they have eyes open obedience. They knew the consequences. Daniel's friends knew that the fire could be their fate. If you watched the movie Selma with us last week, you know Martin knew a a bullet would likely land in his body. Coretta, his wife, knew she would probably end up a widow. And Jesus certainly knew that the shape of his obedience was a cross. What do you know, given your eyes open obedience? What are you maybe scared to accept? As you think about your life, as you think about the cost of obeying, do you have a sense of what the consequences might be? Are your eyes open to that? Do you have eyes to see that? And are you willing to say yes still? Yes still that you might never get tenure. Yes still that your life, given your choices, might always have more physical risk than other lives, other people you know. That your story will never be as straightforward as just riches, and for that matter, just poverty. Where have you not grown curious yet about what your obedience might look like in our broken world? Is there a certain part of your life? Is it your relational world, your finances, job or vocation? Where have you not grown curious yet about what your obedience will mean? What the consequences will be? In the same way, we need to have our eyes open for consequences, to stay resolute, and to be able to obey with eyes wide open. We also need to have our eyes open for the possibilities of obedience with God in the mix. We're not just obedient people. We're obedient unto God, and God is alive, and God has power, and God is good, and God loves us. Let's see how God comes through for these three. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into this fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. 
Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a, a hair of their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Y'all, it's been about 340 days of this pandemic, and we've had a lot of outdoor activities, including when it got colder. And you know what I'm talking about, that outdoor fire, even the smokeless ones, right? No smell of fire on these ones? Like, that's a miracle. Like, the whole thing is a miracle, but that is actually a work of God. Like, no smell of fire on them. And we see here another miracle, too, probably the more important one, that there was a fourth man in the fire. A fourth man joined them, this son of the gods, this person that many think is the person of Jesus, right there in the midst of their obedience, right there in the midst of their fire. When the people of God obey, God shows up right in their midst. God doesn't leave you hanging. God's there with you. And like always, it doesn't just affect you, and it doesn't just comfort you, but it's contagious. People see God's work and God's protection, even enemies. We see it in what Nebuchadnezzar says next. He said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their house be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. It's important to say here, this is a Babylonian king, and he rewards them in a Babylonian way. It's like, this isn't a nonviolent response, but this isn't a king that knows who God is yet. And that's actually kind of important. You see here that the king is kind of offering his best, but it still is dripping in empire, not the nonviolent way of Jesus. Remember that. Sometimes Babylon tries to adopt and kind of say that some things are the way, and we can tell, we can even sniff out, doesn't seem like it to me, but that's a different sermon. Sometimes we don't know where our obedience will lead us, and sometimes we do. Other times it's our gradual process of our eyes opening up to the inevitable reality that being a follower of Jesus will cost us something. What has following Jesus cost you lately? Has it cost you your reputation, money, being understood? time? If you don't know, consider asking Jesus what costly obedience he wants you to pursue. Remember, Daniel and his friends don't start in the furnace, but they do start with a commitment to flourish in exile that grows into resistance through practices of formation and moves into eyes-open obedience, fully aware of the consequences. And they face the flames. Are we open to obey? even when we know or suspect the consequences? Or does that become a place where we run away, we hide, we shirk back? Daniel's friends were moved not by being against, not by picking a fight, not through hunting for persecution under any Babylonian rock. They were responding to deep, formative calls, shaped not simply in them, but in their family and people for generations before they were even born. This call of worship God alone. So deep it's in their bones. So deep it's in their blood. It's their way. And they knew that from an early age. 
What are deep formative calls in your life that are shaping your obedience and will even shape them to the point of consequences, consequences you have eyes wide open about? This can seem heavy, and I think it is, this call to obey God no matter what, no matter the consequences. But God also gives us another way, another way for us to obey, and it's listening to God's voice. To be clear and upfront, the sad thing is we can ignore and and, uh, easily just kind of pass off these deep formative calls and also God's still small voice all the same. If we don't want to obey, we won't. If we let cowardice be loud in our lives, we will fall for it every time. If we trust in the voice of other gods, they will lure us. The drift is real. But thankfully, God's voice is personal. It's close. It's not just our best values or even the way we apply our formation. It's the words of God as mediated to us through Scripture, a dream, a walk through nature, a conversation, practices of prayer. If we're open to obedience, listening to God's voice is paramount because it can direct us in real time, especially around matters that we completely kind of unexpect or just aren't even kind of privy to. We just don't know God's going to speak about them, and then he does, gently, lovingly, like a father. Let's actually cut to a different time in biblical history now. There's still similar things going on, but it's a, a different time. It's moving forward. Jewish, the Jewish people are back in Jerusalem and the surrounding lands And they're still in exile, not by Babylon this time, but through a Roman occupation in their own land. And within this existing structure of oppression, there was a group of Jewish folk that was killing early Jesus followers. The leader of some of these efforts was a man named Saul. Now, some of you are familiar with Saul's story from things we've taught at ECB before, uh, stories from the Bible, how he was stopped by God on a road, was asked by the Spirit of Jesus, why do you persecute me? Then this voice of Jesus says, go into the city. You will be told what you must do. This is the story. But now imagine that the church of Jesus was somehow like aware of this call. Like somehow it was like kind of an open line, right? And they're like, wait, I think God's speaking to someone. And I know what what God's saying. Oh, God's saying that to Saul? You might think about how those people would respond. So Jesus, who's telling that man what to do? Like, can you show up again with that light, you know, the one that you used before to speak to him? Because that Saul, he killed my friends, and I'm, I'm not telling him anything. Who would want to receive your oppressor and give him instructions? Who would want to receive uh, th- this person that was so murderous to the early followers of Jesus? It's one thing to be so deeply formed you're compelled to obedience, like Daniel and his friends, like Jesus was. But this, this is so murky, right? It can seem preventable. Dude kills Jesus followers. I'm a Jesus follower. I separate myself from dude, right? Easy peasy, right? Wrong. And maybe because it'd be so easy to think otherwise, God speaks. God speaks to one of his followers. And I, I love this story because to me, it's just such a random story that's in the scripture. It's almost like, you know, if you follow the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like it's like the end scene of, after a film. If you stay out of the credits, you're like, wait, why is this here? Oh, this is going to set something up. The person in the story, we don't really see in the Bible anymore after this. But God speaks to one of his followers and says, when I said you will be told what you must do, hey, that's you. This is your chance to obey. You will be the one to tell your oppressor his next steps. 
in a time where our thinking is so carceral, carceral meaning a quickness to lock folk up, whether it's on one side or the other, and where cancel culture is so high on either side with tendencies for verbal and physical violence as a consequence, Jesus provides a table, a table for conversation, a table to hold the work Jesus died for, changed hearts, changed minds, changed lives. What sets this table? God's voice and one man's obedience to the voice of God, a man named Ananias. Let's go to the scripture together. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Tarsus, named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. I love this story, and I love how Ananias, early on in the story, reminds the Lord all the harm Saul has done to the Lord. Hey, Lord, you know he's hurting you, right? Like, he really has. And he's hurt our people, too. And, like, he could hurt me, you know? Like, are you thinking about that? He could hurt me even more. Are you concerned about that, God? I am. Ananias hears the voice of the Lord, and he's engaged. He even speaks back. The deeply held formation here, honestly, is not the practice of helping Saul. Perhaps not even the practice of helping oppressors, though you would hope some of that's there because Ananias is following the way of Jesus. But really the deeply held practice here, if we're honest, is not dismissing a vision. The deeply held formation here is that you can ask questions and even talk back to God a little. And of course, the most important deeply formation is that you do what the Lord has said once he says it. Isn't that encouraging? Like, honestly, doesn't that encourage us? There are so many ways I'm not formed, so many areas of my life where I'm just not really deep in my formation, in critical discipleship areas. But I, true, I do try to listen to God. I do try to make a habit to listen as one being taught when I read Scripture, when I'm talking to a mentor or a wise group of friends, when I have a dream that seems meaningful, when I'm receiving prophetic prayer, when I'm walking through nature and something seems from the Lord. What if listening for how to obey God catches so much that leaks out of our discipleship otherwise, that just comes out because we have so much to learn, we have so far to go, but what if we could hear? What if we could listen? It's almost like trying to remember how to make the favorite dish of your grandmother who lives far away, and then realizing your grandmother just finds out how to use FaceTime, and now you're talking with her almost face-to-face. Oh, that recipe? Oh, I got to get that ingredient? Like she's in the room. And what if listening in community allows for God's voice to have a kind of assurance that even if your FaceTime connection gets a little spotty because of your Wi-Fi, other people are with you and they're listening with you. 
To be honest, this listening allows for our obedience to be ordinary, mundane, and like I said earlier, even a little lame. Just think about this made-up conversation. This isn't in, you know, the good book, but hey, let's just be creative a little bit. Ananias, God, God told me to talk to an Ethiopian guy who was studying the scriptures, even though he'd never heard of Jesus. I'm coming back from a visit. I just want to tell you more about this. When I, when I told him he believed in Jesus, he got baptized, and then I actually teleported away to a whole other place. It was phenomenal. So what about you? Where have you seen God lately? Um, cool story, Philip. Well, you know Saul? Oh my gosh, yeah. He killed one of my best friends before I left from the journey. Oh, he, he did. I, I didn't hear about it. Yeah, it was bad. So what were you saying about Saul? I, I mean, I just hosted him a little bit and healed him from blindness. Wait, God blinded Saul because he's unjust and killing us? Wow, God's so intense. No, I, I didn't say that. Uh, I, was mu- I was muttering, but no, I actually healed him from blindness after he stayed at my house and before I baptized him and sent him to other Jesus followers. Wait, what? Like, sometimes obeying God in a particular way seems lame in light of our values or our prejudices or very real objections, to be honest. It exposes other kinds of formation, right? You know, we're not just formed into the likeness of God, but there's a drift and we're formed into other things. Even seemingly good values we can be formed into that stand against the work of God, like values of safety or being against bad people or sticking together with your own. We know Saul was a dangerous man, and the Lord seemingly did not call Ananias to a safe thing, but instead to be secure in God and have eyes open obedience about following Jesus no matter the cost. This can cost our reputation. This can cost our money. This can cost being understood. This can cost our time. For Jesus, it cost his life. For many of Jesus' followers, their lives too, in the early church movement and still today. In 2015, on June 17th, in Charleston, South Carolina, at a historic black church named Mother Emanuel, none of the 12 Bible study attendees thought their white visitor would take nine of their lives. This activity of deep formation, studying scripture and community, and the deep formation of hospitality even to a white guest. It set the scene for their eventual murders. Nine souls no longer here. Their formation was set to worship God. Dylan Roos' formation was set to worship a twisted kind of supremacy that has deep roots in American soil. After the shooting, word came out about forgiveness. It's a word you don't expect to be divisive, but it makes sense that it is. And we played out a new kind of secular liturgy that's kind of happened year after year, time after time. Specific black people who were harmed or lost loved ones forgive. And many white folk applaud their act of forgiveness. And other marginalized groups, especially black folk, wonder whether their forgiveness is actually being applauded or demanded. Wash, rinse, repeat. This even came close to our church with some ECVers walking out of a sermon uh, where this story was told and that line of applause or demand was simply too close to call for them. And more ECVers were left hurt and confused, wondering where is the place of lament, of grief, of anger, even rage with God. And as a multi-ethnic church pastor and a black man, all of it made me sad, tired, angry, 
I was casual with my discipleship, and I decided to be too tired to wade into those waters with God. So I, I let it be an open tab that festered as one of the casual aches of sadness caused by a casual, completely understandable act of disobedience to not bring a hurt to God that I knew he could address, even heal. Then around two years ago, uh, a widower of one of the Charleston Nine came to New Haven, and I recognized him as the one, uh, one of the people that offered forgiveness to Dylan Roof. And I had to go. I had to hear what he had to say to us. And to be honest, I was really disturbed by the largely white reaction to black forgiveness. But I hadn't been able to go there in the same way with the black survivors and black family members. That's their story. That's their choice. But now that I had the chance to hear from him, I had to do it. I had to see what God did. And as uh, people spoke, and as this man spoke, God shared something through his story. It, it turns out that that day, there was a bond hearing. And if you know anything about bond hearings, they're not supposed to be like sentencing trials. And a lot of people don't even go that are family members of uh, a victim or someone that was hurt. But this guy's kid said, Dad, we need to go. We, we need to go. And he said, no, I'm not going. He said he wasn't going to go. But then his kids said, well, we're going to go without you. And what kind of father would let their kids go to that without them there? So he said, okay, I'll go with you. He said, but we're not saying anything. We're not telling anyone anything. The press, that the court, we're not saying anything. We're just going to go and sit and observe. And then this bond hearing, something unusual happened. If you kind of know legal stuff, you usually wouldn't ask someone, hey, do you want to say anything to the defendant? But that's exactly what happened to this man. They asked him, do you want to say anything to this defendant, to Dylan Roof? And at that time, he heard something. He heard God's voice say, get up. I think it's an impression in his heart. Get up. And he said, I've heard that voice before, so I knew what to do. He got up. And he said, I want you to say these words to this man. Brother. Remember what Ananias said to Saul? Brother Saul. Same word. Brother, I forgive you. And I call you to repent. And Christ forgives you, and Christ calls you to repent. It turns out that the forgiveness part got a lot of play in the media. The repentance, less so. And if you need some help with that term, go to one of Patrick's sermons in the summer. He tells you a lot about repentance. It's really good. It's really rich. And Dylan Rufus' head was just on the table the whole time. As soon as he heard the word Christ, he shoots up. And this man says, I know he heard me. And I know he got that message of what I said. God's voice to this man saying, get up. And say these words. And he said when he did that, there was a kind of peace and love that came over him. That gave him capacity to love. And I think, yes, love even Dylan Roof, but also to love his family again. To love his community again. This ache that had been there, it actually had a, a, a flood of something enter into it. And I can't tell you how powerful it was to listen to this man, to hear and say, I, I thought this was what happened. I, I, I thought maybe God said something to him. It wasn't just this kind of folksy forgiveness. It wasn't kind of just this southern forgiveness, whatever that even means. It's kind of stereotype of a black person saying, okay, I forgive you. But it was God saying, get up and say, brother, I forgive you and I call you to repentance, knowing exactly what repentance meant in this case to turn, to turn from real sin, from real death, from real violence, and to choose another way never brings lives back, but it can transform lives, the work of repenting before God.
the voice of the Lord. The voice of the Lord calls us to obedience with eyes wide open of the consequences. And we get to check in, just like this man did. Really get up? We get to ask questions. But why am I speaking? Oh, it's the voice. It's your voice. Okay. And we also have a call to obey. Thank God that it's obedience to his voice, to the deep formation work that God has done in our hearts and our people, not simply our latest whim or a leader's thoughts or our best hope. God's voice in a long formation can guide us as we, like Jesus, set our face to flint to be people of deep formation and deep listening. This is why a pre-made commitment to nonviolence yields fruitfulness, not making a decision as the punch comes towards you. That moment is always, always too late, is almost always too late. And you know that phrase like, you no, know, no one has a plan, right? Right before they get punched. Actually, in nonviolence, you do have a plan. Before the punch, during the punch, after the punch. To not punch back. Because you know who you are in God. You know who this other person is in God. And what violence is trying to do to them. It's a pre-made decision. Instead, we can ask God, God, given all that, where are you calling us to in nonviolence? Where are you calling us to bring peace? Remember that? Uh, line from our service last week, only if it's you, God, but if it is you, if it is you, I'll give my whole life. We can let the deep formation of nonviolence put down deep roots for us, understanding it's the way of Jesus, asking for our needs to be met so we don't have to angrily respond to lack, defiantly naming evil and choosing to flourish in exile and resisting through our formation. This is the work. This is our work. Let's commit eyes wide open to the consequences. There are six homicides in our city, one for every week. Now one hits closer to home for many of us in the last several. The bubble of negative peace in our city has been burst. What will we do as peacemakers in a violent city with violent hearts, including our own? Speak to us, Lord. Help us obey you. And before we move into invitations, I just want to give us a moment to be quiet, to actually listen to the Lord as he invites us to obey. What are the consequences going to be? How can we even be with God in those so we can courageously walk out obedience together? Holy Spirit, I just pray that you could guide us as we listen to your voice, even for this short time. Call us to obey. Guide us there through our formation, however young it is or however long we've been following you. And guide us as well through your still, small voice. Speak, Lord. Here's some invitations for today. Where is God inviting you to deeper formation for obedience? Is it around a biblical value like mercy or freedom, worship of God, not of idols? And you just say, I want to just say yes to that because I feel like God wants to form me even more. Maybe it's through a practice like Sabbath that has this embedded value of rest or forgiveness or encouragement. Second invitation, where is obedience lame to you? Where do you fear it will be? Ask God to reframe your mentality and to speak to you. Ananias probably wasn't that excited to talk to Saul. I think many of us are the same, to talk to uh, the other, the enemy. 
there's a lot of things that God's calling us to in obedience that we probably are like, but that's the way of nonviolence. It's a counterintuitive thing to say, I'm going to stand and be and choose love in the face of violence. That might feel lame to us and to others. How can we invite God into that? And lastly, where can you make a commitment this week to obey God, even in the way of nonviolence? This is all just about saying yes. We're almost at the end of the series, and so I just want us to really be honest with God. God, just help me. What's a way I can say yes and can commit? It could be coming to Thursday's workshop. It could be uh, workshopping something, even not in that context with someone else to say, I know there's a nonviolent response here. I just can't find it. You could know exactly what it is, and it's just doing it this week. What are the invitations that you have? And then I just want to say this other invitation. If you're someone that says, hey, I don't know what it means to obey this good God because I don't know God, I think you might have an invitation right now to make a decision to follow Jesus. It's not exactly just an invitation to obedience. It's an invitation into relationship with the one who calls us into obedience, with the one who's good enough to share how to obey him, why to obey him, and encourages you in the midst of trial. If that's you, if you want to make a decision for Jesus and say, I I think I'd rather obey Jesus, who is good, than these other authorities, other idols, other gods that don't seem to care for me and actually seem to commingle with violence, commingle with empire, commingle with a kind of selfishness, make a decision, even right now, to say yes to Jesus. If you do that, I want to encourage you to let me know. You can email me at josh at elmcityvineyard.org. You can contact any of our staff on the website, but it's a way of saying yes with your whole life and beginning the path of obedience. And I'm hopeful you make that decision. And even if you say, well, I'm not sure, I hope that you know that you're on a track to learn more about God and to see if a yes is for you, even if you can't say that today. These are the invitations for us. This is the invitation for us becoming peacemakers in a city. And I think we need to have peacemakers in this city right now. You know, we talked last week about how our church started with this foundational verse. Seek the peace of the city. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Because in its peace, you will find your peace. There's goodness for us in this message of nonviolence. There's goodness for us in this message of peace. But there are costs and there are consequences. Let's pray together. God, help us bear under these costs and consequences. Help us see them rightly, God so we can know it's still worth it to say yes and let that be anchored in our discipleship, anchored in our formation, anchored in the way we listen to you, that we're listening as those who are taught, seeking to say yes and seeking to follow you with all that we have. Help us, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us.